Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day. Hey, Chicago. I'm Justin Bull and for Aaron Allen. And this is The Rundown. Today, we're talking about long COVID. It's a condition with a lot of different symptoms that develop after an infection with COVID-19. It can last weeks, months, and even years. And unfortunately, getting long COVID is somewhat common. It's generally a minimum of 10% of COVID infections lead to long COVID. This is Hannah Davis, who was among the very first people to investigate long COVID after they developed some unusual and debilitating symptoms when they got COVID in the earliest days of the pandemic. Those symptoms led Hannah to co-found the Patient-Led Research Collaborative, which has published and co-authored several reports on long COVID. Um, I think as of this summer, the lowest estimate of worldwide cases of long COVID is 75 million. The symptoms of long COVID are very varied. And this is science journalist Ed Yong, who won the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for his coverage of COVID in the Atlantic. Here he's talking about the first symptom you might think of when you think of long COVID. One of the most common symptoms of long COVID is fatigue. But that term doesn't do justice to what long haulers are experiencing. Like Their fatigue is not like the fatigue of jet lag or an all-nighter. Their fatigue is this profound lack of energy that doesn't get better with rest and that has many different faces. Ed and Hannah know a lot about long COVID. Ed from his extensive reporting and Hannah from both their research and personal experience. So, with COVID hospitalizations on the rise nationally for the first time this year, Rundown host Aaron Allen spoke with both Ed and Hannah about a few things people need to know about this condition. What it is, what some skeptics get wrong about it, what you should do following a COVID infection, and why clinical trials are so needed to treat it. Hannah starts us off by explaining their own personal journey with long COVID. For me, I got sick in the first wave in New York City in March 2020. I had my first symptom was that I couldn't read a text message, um, which was confusing to me. I had never had anything happen like that before, but Mm -hmm. I kind of self-dismissed it as just I was tired. And an hour later, I took my temperature and realized I had a fever. And I had a very, very mild acute case. Um, I was really not worried for the first couple of weeks because I believed the narrative that everyone would get better in two weeks if you were young and had no pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. But for me, the cognitive impairment was really, really substantial. I couldn't read. I wasn't able to drive. I couldn't remember my family members' names or my partner's names. I ended up having a series of headaches where I lost cognitive function after each one. And then eventually, um, you know, as I started to back in the world, I realized I couldn't really stand up. I couldn't really walk without having a super high heart rate, like 160, 170, just from standing up or walking up a couple stairs and was eventually diagnosed with both myalgic encephalomyelitis and POTS, which is a form of dysautonomia. 
I mean, for me, you know, the only reason I know those 160, 170 heart rates is because I like if I'm on a treadmill, I'll look at my <laughs> at my heart rate on the machine. And I know that I get up there when I am running almost at the peak of my ability. Um, and so if for anyone who needs context for that, that's that's what that is. So this was about the time that you helped to create the patient led research collaborative, right? Yes. So around week three, I read an op-ed in the New York Times by someone named Fiona Lowenstein who had their own prolonged recovery. And they were 26. They had been hospitalized, but did not really get better in the way that, you know, we were being told we would get better. And they created a, a support group. And within that, there was a channel for data nerds, for people like <laughs> myself, whose coping strategy was to try to figure out what was happening to us. And at the time, it was only talked about as a respiratory illness, right? If you went to the doctor, like I went to the doctor um, for the cognitive neurological stuff, and they gave me an inhaler. It was There was just an extreme wow. disconnect. So we decided to research what was happening to get answers for ourselves, and that led to creating answers for kind of the broader public more quickly. So grateful for the data nerds. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a person who reacts that way all the time, but um, we need y'all to so that we can better understand stuff like this. Um, Ed, we've got some acronyms here. Um, this term ME slash CFS. What is it? Yeah, so ME-CFS stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. It is a condition that has existed long before COVID. It is a debilitating long-term chronic illness um, that has often been overlooked. Um, and people who have it are often told that their symptoms are made up, that they're just feeling anxious or depressed, that it's mm. all in their head. Um, and that really underplays how terrible this condition can be. Um, people who have it um, might be bedbound, they might be housebound, um, they might be unable to perform very simple uh, and, and normal activities of daily life. I think the, there's a huge overlap between what people with long COVID have mm. and um, ME-CFS. And a lot of people who with, with long COVID are being diagnosed with ME-CFS. So for, for many people, these conditions are, are one in the same. And uh, a lot of the symptoms are similar. And a lot of the social experiences, that dismissal, that marginalization extend across these diseases. So I think, the, you know, the key thing to to note here is that Long COVID technically is new, right? It's it's the the long term, persistent, debilitating consequences of a COVID infection, but it has huge similarities to these other post viral illnesses that have existed for a long time, uh, of which we know something about. Yeah, the patient led research collaborative has issued several reports about long COVID. In the simplest terms, you can, Hannah. Can you? give a sense of what we know about why people who contract COVID get long COVID. So one misconception about long COVID is that it's mysterious or unknown, and that's really just not the case. There's so much research on long COVID. It's almost one of the most studied illnesses in the world at this point. There's three or four papers coming out every single day, but this, there are some really strong hypotheses for long COVID. I would say the top ones include viral persistence, which means that COVID is getting into the body and staying in the body, somewhere like um, tissue, for instance. 
Um, another is persistence of these reactivatedly in viruses and pathogens that are causing damage. Um, it's axiomatic basically at this point to say that long COVID involves endothelial dysfunction, which means basically shredding of the blood vessels, damage to the blood vessels mm. on your in your whole body. And that's what kind of causes these full body symptoms because obviously your blood vessels are everywhere. And then a few other hypotheses include that there's dysfunctional glymphatic drainage. That's the brain's waste system. And then there's, of course, immune dysfunction. But these hi hypotheses aren't independent of each other. I think it's really important to know that they're probably all happening. And um, we just have to figure out what's upstream and downstream. But I think the important takeaway from, you know, a lot of medical terminology there is that uh, this is a, an extremely complex illness and researchers often come up with way simpler hypotheses when this is really something that needs to be studied very in depth and um, looking at kind of all of these components together. Yeah. The fact that long COVID and ME-CFS seem to involve these problems with really, really fundamental aspects of our bodies explains why the symptoms are so um, bewilderingly diverse. And that mm -hmm. diversity is often used as a reason for skepticism, right? So you hear people saying things like, oh, how could this possibly be real? You know, it involves 200 different symptoms. It, that can't possibly be mm. a thing. But it actually makes complete sense when you look at even the existing science of these conditions. You know, let's, let's lean into that. Um, your reporting, Ed, on long COVID also includes a focus on how some people may deny its very existence. Um, can you talk about what's happening here? Um, maybe get a little bit more into some of your reporting on that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there are some big pernicious social factors that account for the dismissal that um, folks with long COVID experience. Um, so we live in a society where people's productivity is tied to their worth. And we judge people who are unable to be productive. There's also a huge amount of sexism at play here because conditions like long COVID and ME-CFS disproportionately affect women um, who are much more likely to be disbelieved in their pain, uh, to have their very real symptoms psychologized, to be told that they're just being emotional. Or, you know, there's hundreds of variations of these throughout the ages, but um, women get disbelieved more than men. And the fact that women disproportionately suffer from these illnesses is, is very relevant to why they've been so badly um, marginalized. Um, I think there's also the fact that almost every aspect of long COVID serves to hide its reality from public view. So if you have a really severe case of the condition where you are housebound or bedbound, you are not out and about in public, right? So other people in the world and in your life don't see how bad you are. If you have a more moderate case, then there might be situations where you can work, where you can be out and about. And long haulers are massively pressured to pretend as if they are healthy and normal, that they are fine. They might go to work, they'll be as lucid as possible at a doctor's appointment, they might go and see their friends. And none of those people will then see 
um, the consequences of that effort. They won't see the huge amount of rest it takes to work up the energy to present as normal to the wider world. Yeah. And I think for, for all of these reasons, a lot of people, I think, are, are walking around thinking that long COVID is much less of a problem than it actually is. Yeah. You know, if you are listening to this and you find yourself thinking, I don't know anyone with long COVID, I guarantee that you do. Mm. It really is a case of whether those people trust you enough to share the details of this very, very stigmatized health condition with you, or even whether they know enough about it to recognize or accept that they have it themselves. Yeah. And it sounds like you, not only do you probably know one of those people, but you may be one of those people. Right. It's possible. Um, Many of the people I speak to who advocate for long COVID have stories where they're talking to a colleague or a friend who suddenly says, yeah, you know, I've I've just not been myself since I got sick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that there are many forces that are allayed against people even recognizing that they might have this, let alone disclosing it or seeking disability benefits or, or any of the other metrics which we might use to to measure its prevalence. And, and this is why, you know, surveys that directly ask people about their symptoms and, and about how debilitated they are are really important. And, and those provide the high numbers that Hannah was talking about earlier. I would just add to that, that this whole phenomenon has gotten worse as we've tested less because people are less likely to connect their new onset Mm. symptoms to a COVID infection. And also that the neurological subtype in particular often comes with a delay of up to 12 weeks, um, which is more likely in younger folks. Mm. So you might have an infection and then um, not have symptoms until weeks later. And by then you've kind of forgotten that you had an infection. Yeah. Yeah. You're no longer making the connection. That makes sense. And the piece about younger folks is really important here, right? Like the there is still this perception that the worst hit people are older, uh, have a bunch of existing mm-hmm. chronic illnesses, and you know that is certainly true for the the acute forms of the illness, the, the type that sends you to an ICU and puts you on a ventilator. But with long COVID. We know that there are a lot of people who are very young, who are in the peak of their health, who develop this condition. You know, there are support groups out there with thousands of endurance athletes with long COVID. Wow. So the the perception of who gets this condition is often like out of whack with the reality of who gets it. And I think that, again, distorts the perception of it and leads to people who might have it not even realizing that that's what they have. Hannah, I know that there's a lot that people don't know about long COVID. Can you get into some of the things that most people need to know? Um, I want to start with these misconceptions about vaccinations and what people think can keep you from getting long COVID. A lot of people think if you're vaccinated or if you've already had the virus, you're less likely to get long COVID. Can you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. I think we were really hoping that 
either having a prior infection or being fully vaccinated would prevent you from getting long COVID on subsequent infections. Um, but more and more, especially this year, we are seeing the majority of people with new onset long COVID have been fully vaccinated, um, often did have a prior COVID infection and are now getting long COVID on their second or third infection. And that's actually in line with one of the theories of myalgic mm. encephalomyelitis, which is the multiple hit theory, which basically says that your body can handle one or two major immune hits, but then on subsequent immune hits, it just stops being able to handle them as well. Um, so it's really important, mm. I think, for people to know that they are not protected. Like no one is protected from long COVID. I mean, the, the pandemic has been characterized by these overly optimistic narratives that have no basis in, in data. Um, and one of those that I see happening now is that long COVID patients are recovering or that the majority of long COVID patients recover. Um, and mm. that also just does not seem to be based in it, any evidence. There's, there's a lot of recovery in kind of the first few months. So we know that if you still have symptoms at four weeks, you are um, about 50% of people with symptoms at four weeks will feel better by 12 weeks. Um, but we also, after that point, don't see much recovery. And if you're diagnosed with myalgic encephalomyelitis or dysautonomia, those are lifelong conditions. And society is not acting like those are lifelong conditions. Um, and as Ed Young says, they, they basically have some of the highest rates of, of disability of all illnesses. Um, they, many, many people with these illnesses can't work. Um, many can't care for their children. Um, many can't drive. Many are housebound and bedbound. Um, I just wanted to add something on to what, what Hannah said. One of the most important things that I think we'd all like to get across to people who might be new to this is that rest in the early stages is so, so important. And and to, to radically rest, I think that society pushes us to work as hard as we can, right? We live in a very capitalist, ableist environment in which our productivity is equated to our worth. And there's this sort of general dogma in medicine that exercise is good for you. Mm. That advice is good for a lot of health conditions, probably the majority of health conditions. Mm. But it is disastrous when you have this problem that Hannah's alluded to, post-exertional malaise, very common in long COVID and ME-CFS. Um, if you have that, even mild amounts of activity can wreck you and might do so permanently might leave you in a much worse ongoing state than you were before. This is the rare situation where activity could potentially be harmful. Um, I want to get into treatment a little bit. Um, just While we're talking about things people really need to know, what is the state of a more permanent cure for this? I mean, currently the urgency doesn't seem to be there. I think, like Ed said, the understanding of how severe this illness is, is has not been communicated. There are six clinical trials out from six different organizations that seem to be providing hope to the, the patient community that includes things like stem cells, et cetera. But 
right now the, the the scale of searching for treatment is just minuscule in relation to the scale of the problem. Yeah. Um, Ed, or Hannah, I wonder if either of you can speak to some of the disparities around. Ed, you talked about the, the sex component with women being less believed, but around race and socioeconomic status, both with long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome, when it comes to diagnosis and recovery. The demographics of who develops long COVID are both a factor of who is exposed to the virus, but then who actually recognizes that this is what they have. Mm. And who is exposed to the virus, I think that is very clear. Uh, Throughout the pandemic, working class people, people from um, minority groups are just much more likely to suffer an infection than you know, wealthy white people. But the question then is, how many of those people then recognize that they have long COVID when they actually do have it? And that skews the the perception of, you know, who has this illness, that the idea that this is something that only affects, you know, young, wealthy white women is not a reflection of, you know, the, the people who are most at risk of this, it's it's also a reflection of who gets it and then has the resources to talk about mm-hmm. it, has the awareness to know that that's what they have. Um, there are, I think, a lot of people out there who have long COVID, who have possibly even never heard of it, and who just don't have the social support, the connections, the um, resources to get a diagnosis, to get validation from their community. All, all of that is really important and affects the the way the disease presents in society at large. Hannah, you contracted COVID early in the pandemic and you've had long COVID uh, now for more than three years. How are you? Um... I'm not better. I, um, in the early months, I recovered a little bit um, enough to be able to drive and I'm able to work with a lot of accommodations at the patient-led research collaborative, um, in part because the whole team is, is disabled, basically. And so we all kind of accommodate each other. Um, but I, I, you know, was working in machine learning before I got sick. I'm not able to do that anymore. Um, I'm mostly housebound. I've mostly worsened over the years, um, unfortunately. And I have found one or two treatments that have improved my quality of life um, 5 to 10%. And that has been useful. But right now, my hope for my own future rests in you know, the, the assumption that clinical trials are going to reveal something more impactful than what we have available. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I wish you the best and Godspeed with all of the the work that you're doing to get the word out about this. Hannah Davis is the co-founder of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative. Hannah, thank you. Thank you so much. And Ed Yong is a Pulitzer Prize winning science journalist. Ed, thank you. Thank you. For 
more information on long COVID, Ed Yong recommends MEpedia, a crowdsourced encyclopedia from an advocacy group called ME Action, as well as the Long COVID Survival Guide, a book by Fiona Lowenstein. And that's it for today. The Rundown is produced by me, Sarah Stark, and Aaron Allen. Ariel Van Cleve edits the show. Special thanks to Katie Clarkson for the wealth of information and recommendations Katie sent us for this episode. The Rundown is produced by WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. If you love the show, please rate and review us. It helps more people find The Rundown. I'm Justin Bull. Thanks for listening. Thank you.